Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal uh, Global Summetry, which you can find at the Global Summetry Project website. You can also find our podcasts, uh, and there are a number of series, um, at iTunes or at Spotify as well. So feel free. Uh, We have the various series, the Now series, the Summit Dialogue series, and the Shaking the Global Order series, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome back into the virtual studio uh, Oliver de la Costa Stunkel to talk to us about uh, Brazil's response to COVID-19 and more broadly to examine the consequences of the pandemic on Latin American countries. Oliver, by the way, is an associate professor of international relations at FGV in Sao Paulo. Uh, With a number of his colleagues, he launched a new school of international relations there. Oliver has written extensively on the politics of the rising powers, including the BRICS and the future of the global order. His most recent book has been from polity on post-Western world how emerging powers are remaking the global order. He, he writes and talks frequently on the politics of uh, the uh, hemisphere. So uh, come join me as we uh, reintroduce uh, to the audience Oliver de la Costa Stunkel. So welcome back, Oliver. It's a real pleasure to have you with us again in the virtual studio and uh, today uh, hopefully we're going to talk about brazil's response to the COVID 19 crisis thank you for having me oh it's, it's a real pleasure so let's kind of start out with the kind of the big picture and then we'll focus more on brazil it's evident of course oliver as all of us know that the uh, that we have uh, a dramatic global event the COVID 19 pandemic um, I, I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you think that the leading states and the significant international organizations, obviously the WHO, but, uh, you know, they're the financial institutions as well, the IMF, the World Bank, have uh, they kind of uh, stepped up to meet this uh, unprecedented crisis from your perspective? Uh, well, I would uh, say that compared to the uh, last massive crisis which required uh, global cooperation, uh, certainly things are much more difficult uh, now and cooperation is much uh, less pronounced than it was during the uh, financial crisis of 2008. Uh, And and I think there may be several reasons. First of all, uh, uh, it's a different kind of crisis, of course, Mm -hmm. than a financial crisis, but it does really, uh, also from a Brazilian perspective, uh, it's, it's, it's striking uh, the you know how different the, the response, in particular by the U.S. government, is, uh, which uh, a little more than a, a decade ago, um, you know, had really sort of convocatory power uh, and um, empowered the G20, uh, and despite all the difficulties that uh, financial institutions had to respond to this, there was a clear sense that uh, global decision makers were coming together, that there was a constant dialogue going on. And if you compare that to the current situation, I think it's interesting to see that uh, this um, 
quick response to sort of bring together leaders and to seek to uh, build a narrative of how to go through this uh, isn't happening right now. So it's certainly a moment where corporation seems to be much more fragmented, Mm -hmm. uh, much uh, less coordinated, and much more shaped uh, by great power tensions uh, than by a spirit of corporation. So that's, I think, uh, evident and I think generates uh, in particularly you know, developing countries which depend a lot on global cooperation and which are on their own much less capable of addressing this crisis is a very worrisome uh, situation, particularly when considering that we'll have similar challenges uh, like that in the future. I, I take I take that point, I, and I want you to focus just for a moment so that we get a, a clear picture here on, uh, as you know, there have been a whole series of video conferencing, uh, you know, from the G7 uh, uh, foreign ministers, the G20 finance ministers and central bankers, the G20 trade ministers. And then, of course, uh, there was even a uh, uh, video conference of the G20 that actually was called for by uh, the current uh, G20 host, uh, Saudi Arabia. And of course, the G20 statement uh, that was issued after after this meeting was that they, that the G20 was going to do whatever it takes. Um, and what's your reaction to that kind of statement that was issued? Uh, this would have been in March, right? Well, um, I think it's it's of course positive that the meeting happened. But what's, what was really <clears throat> uh, interesting is that um, you know I when I talked to policymakers. Not necessarily people like us who sort of follow these mm. statements closely. Most people hadn't heard about it. Uh, mm. You know, most people are unaware. Uh, mm. So these things, I, I remember, and I actually uh, went back and looked at sort of the, the 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 front pages of major newspapers uh, during the uh, economic crisis of of 2008 2009. You literally had you know images of of global leaders coming together, discussing, sort of making plans. There was a sense. Uh, despite all the, you know, the tension and the, the evidence of economic damage which was taking place, lots of people, you know, losing their jobs, there was never such a sense of kind of rudderlessness uh, that we have where major players are um, disagreeing about how to proceed, where there's uh, a debate uh, dominated by mutual accusations. So I think in the midst of this, uh, the G20 statement ended up not having the impact of sort of structuring the debate, uh, of pointing towards a way of uh, uh, joining forces that would provide sort of a sense of what the co- uh, what a coherent response should be. And, of course, uh, these kinds of statements make sense if they're backed up by uh, behavior of the major players. But what really uh, was striking, again, sort of from a Latin American perspective, is uh, how the United States, for example, uh, started, you know, seizing uh, some of the, um, uh, you know, the the the, the, the ventilators or masks, uh, which had been uh, purchased uh, by uh, Brazil, for example. So there's a bit of a sense that uh, that order and the rules and norms which had been established were breaking down, and then you mm-hmm. had kind of a return of the of the, of the law of the jungle, basically where each country was looking uh, out for its own, uh, yeah. uh, which I think was something you didn't really have back in 2008 and nine. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So now uh, let, let me uh, take you Oliver uh, to discuss uh, Brazil and Brazil's uh, politics uh, currently. Um, uh, we have heard it intermittently about your president. Uh, obviously, not front page for North American uh, 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 listeners, but nevertheless, uh, uh, he he uh, Yair Bolsonaro has been quite skeptical, if not dismissive, of the COVID nineteen crisis. The president uh, apparently, you would know better than I, apparently called the virus a measly cold. Uh, that cannot be allowed to throttle economic growth. How have the Brazilian people reacted to to this kind of dismissive attitude where, it's my understanding, uh, at least uh, 62,000 or about 62,000 Brazilians have been infected and uh, over 4,000 have died in, in, the, in the pandemic in Brazil? Well, um it's certainly unusual for the president to have taken that position. And uh, uh, we like to sort of uh, talk about the ostrich alliance, right, of, of a small number of countries that uh, is, are led by leaders who have sort of actively questioned uh, mm -hmm. the severity of, uh, of the threat this poses to public health. And it's uh, in addition to Brazil, I mean, it's Nicaragua, Turkmenistan and Belarus. I mean, these are all sort of, you know, dictatorships. So it is, even uh, in the Brazilian public debate, uh, it's uh, amazing a lot of people ask, like, how could we end up with a leader uh, who uh, takes such a radical position mm -hmm. uh, which so openly puts many people's lives at risk? And I think the, um, the way to think about it is, is not to say, well, Bolsonaro is crazy or he doesn't know what he's doing. I think he's a very clear strategy uh, behind that. Uh, initially, uh, I think there was, uh, you know, the Brazilian government was looking towards the U.S. president, who's in many ways seen as a model, uh, who continuously uh, minimized uh, the threat. So in that sense, uh, Bolsonaro's reaction wasn't really that that different. Right. Uh, Bols uh, Trump then started taking this uh, suddenly sort of more seriously. But mm -hmm. continued to uh, maintain a, a tense relationship with uh, governors. Bolsonaro hasn't actually done that. He hasn't actually uh, said so far that this is a serious crisis. And the uh, strategic rationale behind that is uh, that in the long term, people uh, will be concerned about the economic fallout. Mm -hmm. And Bolsonaro must distance himself from this economic fallout, which uh, will make it very difficult for him to gain re-election in 2022. So his plan is basically that by the time this is over next year, uh, the economic collapse will be significant. Mm -hmm. Millions of Brazilians will have lost their jobs. And he can say, I told you all along that I was against the social distancing measures because what caused our economic crisis was not the pandemic. But we, uh, which were our, uh, were governors' decisions and mayors' decisions to stop the economy. Uh, so he's basically looking for a way to isolate himself mm -hmm. from uh, the economic crisis that is to come. Now that uh, calculus depends, obviously, on the uh, the human cost, which obviously in increases. Uh, all of us know people, uh, and I have uh, you know Bolsonaro voters uh, in my family who aren't really sure 
about whether this virus is actually that dangerous, and uh, which obviously makes violating uh, you know the social distancing measures mm -hmm. much more likely. Uh, so what he's basically betting on is that people will quickly forget about the death toll, hmm. but will be left with the economic crisis, and then he comes in and says, you know, this is the mayor's fault. Uh, I was initial. I was always saying that we can't impose these uh, measures, which may work out because uh, uh, you know there's all sorts of uh, figures. Uh, look at uh, that Bolsonaro could use to minimize or to to show that well, you know, the 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 uh, coronavirus, the pandemic wasn't really that bad. I mean, just look at homicides, for example. Brazil uh, last year had uh, almost sixty thousand homicides. Right. Uh, you have uh, tens of thousands of uh, people who die uh, in traffic in Brazil. You have lots of people who die of other diseases. So what he's probably going to say a year from now, uh, let's assume several tens of thousands of, of Brazilians will have died. Mm -hmm. He'll say, you know, we stopped our economy for this, but we never stop our economy because of, you know, more than 50,000 homicides a year. So this was, you know, this was uh, it, it, this was not justifiable because of all the uh, economic pain that was inflicted. Uh, now, uh, the evidence is, is obvious that this strategy is extremely risky. It isolates Brazil globally, uh, and it uh, it puts, as I said, a lot of people at risk uh, because I and I speak to Bolsonaro voters. Uh, you know, almost all the time to kind of understand what they're saying mm -hmm. and how they perceive the president. And there is a sizable amount of of people who believe that this is a Chinese plot, uh, who believe that the OMS uh, knowingly lied about this situation, mm -hmm. who believe that this is uh, meant to destabilize the president, who believe that the media is exaggerating the data uh, mm -hmm. Because during the H1N1 crisis, uh, many more people died, but, but because another government was in power, the media didn't really talk about it. So all these kinds of doubts uh, make implementing uh, social distancing measures in an effective way so much more difficult. Uh, and I think the, uh, it's in a way it's also showing what the human cost of you know of fake news is really uh, that you know you have uh, Bolsonaro supporters who every week come together to protest, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in the hundreds, sometimes in the, in the thousands, uh, against these measures. Uh, he is, you know, joining these people, even though there is uh, some evidence that he may have tested positive. Right. Uh, so you, you, for the first time, I think it, it, it becomes obvious to a lot of moderate resilience uh, what the, that there's a tremendous danger to continuously questioning science We've had um, um, uh, doctors being threatened mm. by family members of people who are being treated for COVID-19, uh, mm -hmm. threatening doctors so that they should use uh, chloroquine, for example, or other types of uh, yep. medicine that have been promoted by the president uh, without uh, any scientific evidence. We've had you know, researchers who publicly question the use of some of these medicines uh, being uh, persecuted, being uh, suffering, uh, uh, you know, death threats. Uh, so it's a it's um it's a very difficult environment to operate in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's xenophobia uh, has been a real problem. There's been uh, you know uh, fake news about uh, migrants uh, bringing in the um, the virus. 
So I think the result that you'll have is much more nationalism. It's uh, um, skepticism vis-a-vis uh, globalization and a continued skepticism vis-a-vis science. A lot of people believed that the pandemic could somehow strengthen the notion among the population that you know expertise matters. Uh, but the problem Bolsonaro has is that he's an anti-establishment president. Mm-hmm. And the medical uh, elite or the, you know, the researchers are part of that. So it's for him very difficult to say, let's listen to the experts. Because this is precisely what he fought against. He said, you know, we're being ruled by this uh, group of, of unaccountable, uh, arrogant experts. Uh, we need to end this. And now he's in the situation where he's basically very much limited by his own rhetoric. We're listening to the experts is exactly the opposite of what he promised during the campaign. So, so I mean, there's been a series of, for lack of a better term, eruptions in his government. That is, the he fired, I take it, uh, the health minister because they were in part at loggerheads over lockdown and uh, social distancing, uh, and um, the just recently. The justice minister, uh, in fact, uh, resigned, and and it's not just a minister. This this gentleman, uh, Sergio Moro, if I'm correct, who was a former, I take it, federal prosecutor, very right. very well known for his anti-corruption uh, efforts, and so his being part of the, the Bolsonaro government was an important uh, element uh, in the government. He he resigned and uh, accused Bolsonaro of criminal conduct. What's the impact of those kinds of decisions, particularly the moral the resignation, which seemed to me to be uh, really quite serious for for him? Right. So, uh, yeah, well, the, the Minister of Health uh, w- was basically, uh, you know, a very technocratic uh, uh, um, figure who, you know, just basically applied sort of, uh, uh, you know, the World Health Organization right. guidelines um, which obviously, um, and he's a, you know, a f- physician by training, uh, and he, you know, he was quite, uh, you know, popular and became very popular, uh, even amongst uh, people who had not voted for Bolsonaro because he was seen to be sort of a fairly, uh, you know, cohesive and, you know, reliable personality. Uh, and then he became so popular because, of course, uh, he was also being strongly supported by opposition figures because he actively... Uh, uh, you know, said the opposite of what Bolsonaro was was saying during his, you know, Facebook lives and uh, his, whenever he said, you know, this is not serious, we should yeah. end this crazy lockdown. Uh, five minutes later, the uh, Minister of Health uh, said that it was very important to respect the lockdown. And at some stage, he had to say, a, a journalist asked him, should we listen to the president or should we listen to the governors? And he said, you know, I'd say you should rather listen to uh, the governors. Uh, so in, in the end, this was, of course, uh, uh, fairly obvious. And it was quite interesting that uh, when uh, he was dismissed, uh, that Bolsonaro actively embraced uh, the fact that, you know, his radical supporters, many of whom doubt uh, that uh, the pandemic is real. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of moderates started abandoning him. And it's important to uh, just very quickly about, uh, you know, what Bolsonaro's coalition uh, looks like. Bolsonaro had a brilliant electoral strategy. 
mm-hmm. um, he was able to uh, capture or to to seize on sort of three grievances that existed in Brazilian society uh, ahead of the election, which was uh, the first group of the first grievance was sort of a grievance for for uh, sort of a moral restoration uh, after you know lots of corruption scandals. Uh, the second grievance was extremely high levels of crime, so people sort of uh, sought, you know, they, they were nostalgic about stability and the military dictatorship to some extent is being associated to, a lot, to greater stability. So there was sort mm-hmm. of a demand to have, um, you know, the, uh, security experts step in. So he brought on uh, several generals uh, who he promised to put into the cabinet. And uh, Brazil had just uh, been through its worst economic crisis in in history. Uh, So he brought on these uh, economic technocrats. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, uh, Moro, the anti-corruption SAR, was uh, also seen as sort of an expert in uh, law enforcement. Uh, So uh, these three groups, one, ultra-conservatives, lots of pastors and evangelicals who were brought into the government, who, uh, who were crucial to mobilize uh, the evangelical voters in Brazil, a lot of people who were unhappy about crime. He brought on the generals and the elites who uh, were sort of, uh, you know, hoping for an economic revival. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought on those technocrats. Now, uh, and those, it's important to know that those people who voted for Bolsonaro because of the technocrats, believe that those could somehow control the president. So there was uh, this whole idea about so- what we call super ministers, mm-hmm. which are essentially sort of adults in the room. And Bolsonaro clearly said, you know, whatever happens, the minister of justice is independent. He can do whatever I, uh, he wants. The minister of the economy can do whatever the, uh, he wants. This is great for investors, you know, for banks who, and for a lot of elites who just wanted the workers party out and who said, you know, uh, we'll trust these technocrats to control the president. Now, um, Bolsonaro's more recent behavior, uh, his decision, for example, to sack a technocratic minister of health, uh, led the uh, moderates to abandon the president because uh, his whole strategy to deal with the pandemic it was not at all scientific. Uh, it was very much him sort of acting according to his instinct. Uh, uh, these People who had voted for Bolsonaro were ashamed of what he was saying uh, about the pandemic, how he is handling the pandemic, are ashamed of the fact that the world is looking towards Brazil and asks, what is happening? Why is the president doing these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have been ad- abandoning him for quite some time for the strategy. And the um, Minister of Justice, uh, jumping ship, uh, basically accelerated this trend. Uh, also because, uh, you know, he, as his parting shot, basically uh, accused the president of interfering, uh, of, of obstruction of justice, of, 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 of changing the head of the federal police in order to mm-hmm. obstruct the investigation that was going on against his sons. Uh, so what we have now is a very much radicalized president who no longer counts on the votes of the moderates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that about 20 to 25 percent of Brazilians continue to support the president. Um, and that may be enough because uh, in order to impeach a president, you need two thirds in Congress. And that requires uh, the left and the right to jointly uh, you know, work together to get the president out. Now, for the Workers' Party uh, and the opposition as a whole, 
uh, it may be strategically better to let Bolsonaro quote unquote bleed until the end rather than to have a, a vice president come to power who's a you know very non no nonsense uh, former general uh, and whose approval ratings are probably going to shoot up uh, the minute he takes over and on top of that uh, you'd have uh, you'd you know you'd have the minister of justice the former minister of justice Sergio Moro being empowered uh, for being sort of the dragon slayer of uh, you know who got out Lula and now he got uh, he kicked out uh, Bolsonaro. But the Workers' Party, uh, I think, would much rather face Bolsonaro in a 2022 election mm-hmm. than uh, Moro as a, a presidential yeah. candidate. Uh, mm-hmm. So basically, uh, by uh, accepting the impeachment of Bolsonaro, you'd elevate the status of Moro, who is the archenemy of the opposition, because he was responsible as prosecutor for uh, getting basically Lula out of the way. There's mm-hmm. a lot of questions because of leaks that have been happened later on, a lot of questions about the way that uh, Moro as a judge conducted the investigations. Uh, so it's a, it's a strategy Bolsonaro is clearly aware of, uh, that there's, the opposition is divided. There's not a single opposition figure who can really uh, uh, you know, uh, absorb all this uh, anti-Bolsonaro sentiment. And he may actually be able to pull it off. Uh, uh, it's uh, he's a very uh, he doesn't come. He's not intelligent in a classic sense. The president Bolsonaro. He he doesn't speak Portuguese well. He makes mistakes. Uh, but uh, but he's a very shrewd tactician. And even though he's facing the biggest crisis of his presidency, he may uh, be impeached. He could still survive because the opposition is is so divided. Interesting. So, so I mean, it, it sounds very similar in a way to the American scene and the debate that went on about impeachment versus the election in 2020, which is November. It sounds very similar to that. And you know, obviously, at the end of the day, they ended up uh, with an impeachment process, but it was quite clear that uh, that he he was going to survive. That is, uh, Trump was right. going to survive, and that uh, the Democratic Party on the American side had clearly made the decision that they were going to unite, as it's shown to be the case, and uh, target the election as the basis of removal, not ultimately the impeachment, which clearly, given the Senate composition in the United States, was not not likely to happen. So it seems very similar in that sense, with even more divisions, I take it, within, within the Brazilian kind of arc of, of uh, political faction. Right. I mean, you, you'd basically, in order to, uh, for impeachment to happen, uh, and that's also uh, you know, one of the uh, interesting uh, points, you need people in the streets, uh, right? Uh, right now in a pandemic, and uh, even though a lot of uh, a significant part of the population uh, violates uh, the rules, particularly uh, a poor Brazilians who uh, do not receive yet any state support, uh, can't stay at home, uh, particularly in the peripheries and in the, in the slums. It's very difficult to implement uh, social distancing measures. A lot of these people uh, don't have running uh, you know, water in their homes. It's, uh, so uh, it's sometimes necessary to work in order to be able to eat at the end of the day. 
so, uh, but you don't have, uh, you know, people being able to take the streets, uh, which is one of the requirements for mm-hmm. impeachment to happen. The second is a profound economic crisis, which will happen. And the third aspect, which must also happen, is that, uh, as I said, sort of the, the left and the right must somehow rally around uh, the alternative. Right. And as I said, I, uh, in general, um, and this is actually, uh, again, Bolsonaro being quite smart, uh, he elected, uh, he chose as vice president uh, somebody who is seen as, uh, you know, experienced uh, superior, actually, to Bolsonaro, uh, potentially electorally more difficult to beat uh, uh, in a future election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Bolsonaro knows that. And uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, the evidence that uh, could emerge uh, in the coming weeks could be so damning that public pressure increases uh, so that uh, Congress must act. There's also a Supreme Court investigation now going on against the president. The Supreme Court, if it decides that, pre- that the president has violated uh, the law, uh, it, it, he could be temporarily removed, but it still needs to be approved by two-thirds of Congress. Uh, mm-hmm. So in that sense, you'd, you'd have a temporary removal, and then it really is up to... Congress basically it will do what sort of public opinion uh, also says, or whether you know, that it, it is strategically advantageous for uh, uh, Brazilian congressmen uh, to, uh, to impeach the president or not. It does, has less to do with uh, the violation itself. Yeah. Uh, Dilma Rousseff was basically uh, removed from office, not because of these specific violations, but because it was, uh, you, you know, a dynamic had taken hold of Congress, which uh, made her impeachment likely. Uh, the, of course, uh, the uh, growing pressure as the pandemic worsens uh, will uh, be on the political system because uh, the president is making uh, or is showing no signs of changing his strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the human toll <clears throat> could become so high uh, that, uh, you know, that, that pressure on, you know, the president of Congress in order to accept this uh, will grow at the same time, uh, just like in the United States, an impeachment proceeding in Brazil is a traumatizing experience for the political system. It absorbs weeks and weeks of the public debate, and the big question is, uh, can we have, uh, can we, can we, you know, uh, basically have this debate for two months mm-hmm. in the midst of the worst pandemic, pandemic. in a century? Yeah. That's sort of the the dilemma we're in right now. Whether it makes sense to to change the 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 pilot uh, as the plane is going through, you know, the worst uh, turbulence uh, in 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 memory. So I take it then, kind of wrapping up. I mean, the, uh, is there? I mean, uh, the great concern has to be, aside from the pandemic, which is clear, and and human and human toll. Uh, there is, I presume, among the the public, a great concern about uh, about the economy and the consequences that the that the virus is likely to have on on the economic growth and and productivity of of brazil's economy absolutely and i think it's important to point out that um i mean latin america is likely to be uh is likely to suffer latin america's economy is likely to suffer much more Mm -hmm. than that of the united states 
or Europe. And there's a, a couple of reasons for that. The first is uh, Latin America uh, was the worst performing region uh, economically in the world mm -hmm. uh, in 2019. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, with growth much, much lower than anywhere else, uh, half of the growth you have in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and these are, I mean, you know, this is developing countries which should be growing faster mm -hmm. than, say, North America or, or the EU. Uh, but uh, really a region that is going to tremendous trouble uh, and which saw uh, mass protests across the board, uh, a humanitarian disaster in Venezuela with uh, almost 5 million people who have fled. Mm -hmm. uh, mass protests in Chile, uh, mass protests in Colombia, uh, a very murky situation in Bolivia, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of protests and political violence, uh, a, a political uh, protests, mass protests in uh, Ecuador after the country had to ask for uh, uh, help from the IMF. Mm -hmm. uh, austerity measures, uh, a, a very difficult economic situation in Argentina, mm -hmm. uh, where the country was basically, uh, you know, in default uh, before the pandemic. Uh, uh, so, and a situation, economic situation, very, very difficult with Brazil showing its worst economic growth in three years uh, of basically 1%. Uh, so, really, uh, the worst possible. Uh, situation to have ahead of a pandemic. Uh, uh, Brazil and Latin America as a whole very dependent on commodity prices. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ecuador, Venezuela, very dependent on oil. Colombia, uh, crucial. So the um, uh, the impact that's going to have is massive. Uh, and uh, on top of that, uh, countries with basically no fiscal space to, uh, you know, to mount sort of a rescue uh, package, as it's, uh, you know, seen in, uh, you know, across the world, basically, uh, uh, you know, Japan, United States, the UK, EU, even China, is really, uh, you know, engaging uh, in order to to reduce the the, the damage, uh, changing fiscal rules, etc. Uh, the 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 probability, the the, probabil the, the um, potential that Latin American governments have is much, much smaller. And mm -hmm. on top of all of that, you have, um, again, parts of the population who don't believe in, uh, in the severity of the pandemic because of presidential rhetoric and a significant part of the population that because of uh, where it lives, uh, just can't really adopt social distancing measures, which suggests that what we see in Ecuador uh, is basically just the prelude of what we'll see in the rest of the region. And the consequence of that always is political instability, which, and there you have a vicious cycle in a sense. The minute you have political instability, you make uh, you know, the place much less uh, attractive for investors. Investors, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Which will think twice if you have you know, presidents falling, uh, potentially um, uh, ruptures of democratic rule, uh, you know, a, a, a humanitarian crisis next door that goes unabated. Um, it's sort of the worst possible environment uh, to initiate a moment to initiate economic recovery. Uh, so it's very, very hard to be uh, optimistic, I think, about the region right now. The only thing I could think of is that um, the kinds of debates about, you know, universal basic income, about uh, uh, about increasing state capacity 
about uh, reviewing some regressive taxes which are happening in, in Latin America across the board, that those uh, that this pandemic could be a moment to really reflect on with rising poverty levels, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about uh, basically promoting a debate of, of taking more concrete action about how to solve these things. Well, I want to thank you, Oliver. It's a rather grim picture. I mean, little did I know that it wasn't just the pandemic, all these other political and economic uh, matters that are uh, stalking uh, Latin America. But I do want to thank you for uh, giving us that in, those insights uh, through, through our uh, discussion today. Thank you very much, and I hope uh, all goes well for you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.